We work. Mr. Newman reminds me of Alfred Newman in Mad Magazine. It was ill-conceived, ill-financed. It just simply didn't work. You're listening to Buff Speak, the official podcast of the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. I am Dr. Nick Gerlich, your host, as we meet up with the thought leaders making an impact today. If there is any one topic that scares people the most, it is whether they will be able to retire and how they're going to be able to fund it. We hope that we are saving enough, but for many people, the reality is the opposite. During COVID, the average savings rate hit nearly 34%, but by late last year, in the midst of a recovery, it sank to a little more than 7%. But factor in myriad economic concerns, not to mention corporate crises that caused many people to lose faith, and you have the ingredients for a population in just a little bit of despair. Navigating the choppy waters of corporate finance is no small task, and for those of us just hoping to one day be able to retire comfortably, we worry about whether companies will survive scrutiny and our accounts will somehow be able to yield enough to get by. Our guest today is Dr. Jim Owens, the Hodges Professor of Corporate Governance at the Engler College of Business, a professor who has ridden the waves of finance for many years and understands the ebb and flow of stock prices and market valuations. It was in December 2001 that corporate finance hit the headlines, thanks to Enron and the implosion of their bankruptcy filings. What in the world went wrong, Jim, and how did this set the stage for the current era? They actually called themselves the smartest guys in the room. It turned out they weren't. (laughs) What actually happened was they were so desperate to continue to show increasing earnings that they took all of the debt out of Enron and they stashed it in little side shell companies so that Enron appeared as though it was growing. They would count, they did what they call mark-to-market. In other words, I recorded as revenue what I anticipated receiving, not what I was actually receiving in cash. There actually was a whistleblower. Her name is Sherry Watkins. She wrote a memo to the then CEO, who has since passed away, Kenneth Lay, regarding all of these questionable accounting practices. He ignored the memo. And eventually, it all began to unravel. Um, Basically, people said it is just too good to be true, and they started looking at it. It resulted not only in the bankruptcy of Enron. Most of the employees had all of their retirement savings in Enron stock. They lost everything. We had people one month out from retirement who thought they were going to retire as a millionaire and retired with zero. Uh, because it was a, they were not told that they had the right at that age to move some of the funds out of Enron stock into other stocks. It was just simply Enron's way of keeping the prices under demand. Actually, the accounting firm also went bankrupt. Or the, it took a couple more flubs. <laughs> they were in on WorldCom and Tyco as well. It was Arthur Anderson, and they also were completely bankrupt. In other words, you've got partners in Arthur Anderson operating in Europe who now have nothing because it is a partnership. It was just wiped out. So the Enron debacle went more than just one company. <laughs> it resulted in the passage of what we call Sarbanes-Oxley, SOX. The biggest issue in SOX, there's a whole group of provisions, but the one that really mattered is that for the first time, the CEO and the CFO must personally sign the financial statements. They take personal liability for their correctness. You can't say, I don't know about that, the accountants, I hire accountants. You signed it. They come get the house, the car, the kids, everything. And that's the first time we've ever had personal liability like that. When did corporate governance become a thing? And was this the pivotal moment? Because when you and I first started teaching, we didn't hear much about these kinds of things. 
It actually started by the Security Exchange Commission in 1976 is when they actually first introduced the term into the Federal Registry. Um, it had been mumbled about previously, but the Security Exchange Commission really created it. And so did Enron launch an ongoing period of distrust in large corporations and Wall Street in general? Enron certainly was part of it. Actually, it began probably back in the 1980s in the deal decade, they call it. Um, the famous movie line, greed is good. Um, I think Mr. Douglas pr pronounced that one. But that whole era, there were actually states that passed laws that stopped um, companies from doing takeovers in their state. That I would say it really began back in that 1980s period. So how have companies evolved in this period, like the last 20 years or so? Do you think they really understand their accountabilities and responsibilities? I would say probably not. The reason being the average age of a board member in the United States is 63, which means most of them grew up in their 20s and going to school and in their 40s, building their career during that era of anything goes as long as I'm making money. It's hard when you're 63 to suddenly look at the world differently. You've got a whole lifetime built. And uh, until that group comes out of the boards, I think we're stuck. In recent years, the acronym ESG has become common. It stands for environmental, social, and governance criteria that investors use to screen investments. Is this a result of the Enron years? And exactly what do each of these three letters actually mean? The environmental goes to, obviously, simple terms, the term climate change, but the, the concern with all environmental issues, uh, not just climate change, but for example, there was an ex uh, a situation of a chemical company in India that dumped a lot of toxic waste that killed a large number of people. Um, that would be environmental concern. You can't dump your trash into the river. Uh, that just doesn't work anymore. The social part basically goes to the issue of how well are you taking care, not only of your employees, but your community. You're part of that community. The governance part goes, are you accountable? Can I look and see who's making the decisions, what the decisions are, what their effect is? So it's the visibility, it's the transparency, it's the governance side. But aren't these dimensions still rather nebulous and fuzzy and uh, kind of subjective? Some might view Tesla as being environmental, but others may say the opposite, that their cars require batteries and parts that involve African mining under questionable conditions and fossil fuel burning energy to keep them rolling. It is. Uh, we're beginning to move to a new terminology for ESG. It will be FESG uh, for financial. In other words, can we begin to quantify the environmental impacts? Can we quantify in dollar terms or some firm? And again, it's, it's always awkward. How do you put the value on a human? Um, but there has to be some way of saying there is an economic benefit in contented, productive employees as opposed to those who just show up to get a check, that it, had, it created some value. So we need to find a way, and it will be awkward to do. It's not going to come easy. We have to find a way to quantify this. And because right now, yes, it is, there's more talk than there is action. The marketer in me understands how those letters, ESG, and maybe stir in the F as well, could become promotional fodder. I have seen all too many mutual funds espousing the noble ideals of ESG, but maybe that's just bluster and not so much reality. In fact, I've seen criticism saying that um, these ESG funds are often targeted at younger, far more idealistic people who have a very different worldview than people like you and me. What are your thoughts on this? And is ESG just the soup of the day? To a limited degree. 
but you have to appreciate the power of some of the people who are strong supporters. For example, BlackRock, which is one of the major funds in this world, it's a $10.1 trillion fund. BlackRock writes a letter every year to the CEOs of the companies in which it has invested. And it explains that if we cannot see positive proof of your pro progress in ESG, we will disinvest. We'll pull our money out. We have a responsibility to the people who own BlackRock. So therefore, we are, and he actually sends the letter out. Larry Fink is the, the CEO of BlackRock. He actually sends the letter to the CEOs of the companies in which they invest and say, I need to see proof. If I'm not seeing it, we'll just not invest in you any longer. When you're a $10 trillion fund, you kind of get listened to. What generational differences, if any, have you noticed among investors? Uh, for me as a baby boomer and actually kind of a, an old baby boomer now, I'm interested in returns, pure and simple, and probably a lot less interested in risky high growth potential and more interested in just pure old dividends. Um, I know in advance where I want my accounts to be before I jump off the cliff, because after that point, there won't be any increases in earnings. I'll be living off the proceeds. But for someone who is only 25 or 30, they may be a lot more idealistic and altruistic. What are your thoughts on this? I think probably the Gen Z's millennials certainly are leading the charge, uh, partially because from a young age they've been listening to issues of climate change. <clears throat> the reality is climate change is here. We know it is. You and I have both had the opportunity, you more than me, to travel. Flagstaff, Arizona is close to being evacuated today because of the wildfires. Ten years ago, that would be, have been unheard of. After a winter of snow in those hills, all those trees and all that ground would be green. And it's not. It's burning. So we know it's real. And the 23s are more likely to talk about it, but the 65 pluses are going to have to deal, yes, it's here, and we've got to be able to cope with it. Do you think today's 25 to 30-year-olds will remain this way as they get older, or will they become like us? They'll age to conservatism. We all do. It just goes with the territory. Um what happens is they'll be aware of it. They basically will say, as long as it doesn't cost me any money, as long as it's profitable for me, I'm fine. But it, it's part of aging. You simply become more sensitive to those issues. You don't have time to recover. So you, you just do. What do you think the future holds for corporate finance and governance? Do you think that today's young people will become those stodgy, profit-minded people like us? Or will the market change forever to one of greater ESG responsibilities and accountabilities? The ESG will stay to the extent that that's how you will attract new money um, and, and good talent. I mean, again, the talent will come from the young people. Um, and they're going to be the idealistic ones. So it will stay around. I mean, nobody's saying it will go away. I think there will be a passing of the mantle. As people age, they will pass it down to the next generation. And we may find different issues uh, in terms of environmental concerns um, and that kind of issue. For example, right now we know the ice is breaking off at the Antarctic. Well, that's just an intellectual thing. When seawater starts to rise, it's no longer intellectual, it's real. But that's down the road. When we were younger, we never could have dreamed of a Dow Jones Industrial Average of 35,000. But here we are. How high can this thing go? It's up this morning. Um, again, of course, you have to realize these days, to you and I back in the day, a 350-point move was a big day. This morning is 
it, <laughs> it's not getting any attention at all. The S&P and the Dow this morning when they opened out were both up about a percent, but it's nothing. Um, you have to recognize we change companies in the Dow constantly. So it's really hard to compare across time. I tried to play with inflation on it as to where it had been. Um, back in 1982, it was at 819. So 40 years later, you're sitting at 35,000. That way exceeds inflation, but it's not the same components. So as you add in newer tech companies that sell for higher prices, higher multiples, the Dow goes up. Uh, so it's very hard to compare across time. So is that not necessarily a, a good indicator of overall market performance? No. You want to look at the New York Stock Exchange Index, the, broad, the whole market as a whole. The problem is everybody's so used to the Dow now that even us older ones who know better still, if I address it in class, which I typically do every time I have a physical class um, because it's a quiz, that's how we start class. You get $5 if you can tell me the Dow this morning, which means you got to pay attention. <laughs> um, but I And there I am using the Dow, not the New York index. Uh, it's just habit. After the break, we'll take a look at some painful economic and financial topics, things that are affecting each and every one of us today. There's a reason why our programs are rated so highly by independent reviewers. We are committed to continuously improving what we do. Whether it is in the classroom or online, the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business strives to stay ahead of the curve, not behind it. Join us in the classroom or online and see the difference. We're WCSB accredited and among the most elite business schools around the world. Reach for the stars and do it with a WT business degree in hand. For more info, find us online at wtamu.edu slash cob or call 806-651-2525. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we are here to help you reach for those stars. Unless you've been living in a cave for the last few years, we have survived a pandemic but suddenly found ourselves enduring the worst inflation in 40 years, gasoline prices that are more than double what they were scarcely more than a year ago, and still reeling from supply chain problems. Without getting political, if I were in the White House right now, I'd be getting nervous. After all, we've seen this play out before. Of course, it's not nearly as bad as things were in 1980 when inflation was more than 14%. And while gas prices in spring 1981, when I graduated university, were as seemingly cheap, $1.35 a gallon, once you adjust for inflation, that comes out to $4.27 in current dollars. In other words, gas was actually crazy expensive then, at least in the American eye. And unemployment then was 7.5% leading economists to say that we were experiencing stagflation. Inflation? Say hello to recession. Hmm. At least unemployment is relatively low today at 3.6%, although the pandemic helped cause the great resignation. It may be that there just aren't as many people in the labor market as there were two years ago. Jim, how are the current rounds of inflation and high fuel prices affecting the economy? They're having a very strong effect, but what you need to appreciate is that the rise in inflation is one month old. January and February were at 0.4. We suddenly jumped to seven and a half. Coordinate that with the calendar of the crisis in Ukraine. And it's very obvious what happened. Right now, fuel oil, March over March, 22 to 21. Fuel oil's up 70%. Now, the Northeast just came out of the winter. They heat with fuel oil a lot up there. So that was partially demand, partially shortage. Uh, motor fuel's up 48%. Gasoline, 48%. Used cars and trucks <laughs> are up 35%, mainly because they have the chips in them, as opposed to the newer cars who are still missing semiconductor chips. 
Um, airline fares are up 23%. Anything that requires the movement of goods and therefore fuel is going to have more inflation. It is just going to happen. The Ukrainian situation, if you, for example, we imported 90,000 barrels a day of oil from Russia, mostly into the East Coast because the refineries there were set up to deal with it. That's obviously been cut off. It has to be replaced, not a problem. But now the ships have got to go a longer distance. It'll take a longer period of time. It's going to cost more money. So a lot of what we are seeing really is very short-term in nature. Uh, we gasp over the seven and a half to eight and a half. But we knew this situation was coming way before the war started. We should have seen it gotten ready. <clears throat> And what effect has it had on the stock market? After all, we have a lot of baby boomers who are getting old who might like to be scheduling their retirement in the coming years. You better be getting conservative. It's going to be flat volatile for a while. We're going to stick around the 35000 up, down. Again, scary amounts because of we're not used to the numbers. But it could move 1,000 points a day. And that will sound horrifying until you work it into percentage terms and then you might calm down a little bit. Uh, but again, if you are concerned about that, it is time to start getting very conservative. Started Starting to move back to that idea of 70% fixed, 30% in an equity, uh, which is an old-fashioned idea, but I think as time has come back. What is your prognosis for the mess in which we find ourselves today? How long do you think it will last? At least two years, if not more. Uh, you've got to get the conflict ended, one. Two, you've got a massive problem coming up very shortly. <clears throat> Excuse me. Of the eight major countries to which Russia and Ukraine export wheat, seven of the eight are in Africa. You're going to have a mass starvation problem. Uh, two of the countries down there import 100% of their wheat from Russia and Ukraine. That's now gone. Either the Ukrainian can't get theirs out of the fields because of the war, especially with the Donbass thing, and the Russians are sanctioned. So by virtue of that, the wheat's not going to move. It's got to be made up from somewhere else, but you can't just flip a switch. It takes six months to grow wheat. So you're looking at... I think some massive problems going forward in there. Um, as a consequence, there's going to be inflation. It's going to continue. Uh, we can't make up for the shortage in, particularly in Europe, you can't make up for the shortage in fuel. Germany, no matter how well-intentioned, 70% of their gas supply comes from Russia. Um, I, when I know they intellectually would like to wean themselves off you don't wean off that much that fast. It will take time. And if you go move to replace it with LNG, liquefied natural gas, it's expensive. When I started here back in 1989, my first financial planner told me that I could pretty safely bank on the idea of an average growth rate of 10% in, in my savings, my retirement accounts. And about 15, 18 years ago, um, I had another financial planner say, you know, hold on, not so generous there, Nick. It's more like about 7% is a, is a, uh, a reasonable average growth rate. What do you think it is today, Jim? Uh, right now, <laughs> long-term statistics, if you believe in them, since 1928, you should be earning about 7% above the risk-free rate, risk-free being T-bills, which right now are effectively zero. So you're looking at about 7%. Uh, is, is what we call revert to the mean. Some years it could be 15, some years it could be minus 10. But on average, <laughs> your anticipation is over time 7%. The problem is most of us don't get to live 50 more years on average. So, on average, we're all dead exactly, <laughs> sooner or later. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it, is, it is fun to think about it, though, because even with a, a 7%, average growth rate using the rule of 72, that means your money theoretically could double in just a little over 10 years. Yes. Yes. And uh, I think 
for most people, I encourage my students constantly <laughs> by showing them the historical numbers, put your money in equity, put it in a no-load index fund, and don't look. Leave it alone. Don't look up the price. Just look the other way. Calm down. Um, it's just the reality of things. It should come as no surprise that many people vote with their pocketbooks, not just when they are shopping, but also when they are at the polls. Why is it that when push comes to shove, self-interest rules the day? Because we're all selfish by nature. The world revolves around us. Uh, we all consider ourselves masters of the universe. Let me, let me give you a living example. Uh, Austin Middle School in Amarillo is basically falling down around itself. There's a bond proposal to take it down or replace it. The, <laughs> the vehemence of either pro or con is beyond the pale. Um, I'm older. I'm not that far from retirement. Um, yes, I should be against my taxes going up. It's going to cost me 20 bucks a year for the kids to be better educated. That would be, I think, exceedingly hypocritical for an educator to be against. And yet I, I totally understand how some people could think that way because they don't have kids in the school district it's, anymore. Exactly. And I think that is a major change in our culture. Um, and I have no way to ascribe its source but we have all become a center of one and we no longer look for the, the general well-being. And uh, I think that's a, a remarkable change in our society. So what's in it for me? If I have to pay more at the pump, at the grocery store, wherever, then... It's somebody else's fault. And the fact that the Ukrainians are dying and that's the reason there's a shortage, well, I, okay, that's an interesting thing, but... I'm mad. It's, it's me. <laughs> Everything's about me. And it's exacerbated because everybody on social media has a microphone in front of them. Exactly. <laughs> I, in my neighborhood, we have one of those little, what we call next door, um, community chit-chat things. Mostly it's for trying to track down lost animals. But somebody raised the issue of this bond thing on there. It's over 80 responses. And many of them are really rude, really, I think, inappropriate to write. Um, and calling each other names, and it's just amazing. And we all live in the same neighborhood. And you got to go, what has happened that we can't have a reasoned discussion about things? President Carter was certainly a victim of stagflation, and he didn't stand much of a chance in the 1980 election. Thankfully, unemployment is not bad right now, but the American public is just not having it. At the moment, more than half of the voting public disapproves of President Biden. And while there are numerous reasons why, at the top of the list are the things that affect us the most, inflation and gas prices. But what is a president to do? Short of releasing oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve or relaxing fuel taxes or doing something drastic like implementing price ceilings, there's little that can be done in the short run. Those may also be viewed as methods to try to affect midterm elections. And as for inflation in general, that's a tough animal to take down. What are your thoughts on this? You're going to have to get production up. You can never solve a problem by reducing costs. You can only solve it by increasing revenue. And you want to solve the gasoline price problem, get your production up. And yes, I know, ESG, I just violated environmental. There's the, there's the conflict. Socially, I want those prices down because there's a great many people of lower income or fixed income who are inappropriately burdened by the higher prices. By the same token, I can see the environmentalist concern, but you've got to increase production. It's the only way out. Well, I just saw an article uh, with an interview um, of a Macy's executive 
who is very worried that during these inflationary times, people are going to quit buying merchandise and spend it on travel experiences instead, in spite of the high gas price. What are your thoughts on that? I think it could, well, again, it's because we're all focused on ourselves. Um, I do think there's an issue there. I read an interesting piece this morning by a young lady who at 26 is um, economically very comfortable. She's been very successful in her investments. Her comment was, I only buy clothes that are used. I go to those sites where people are selling their high-end designer dresses because they they wore it to the event and you can't wear it twice. So they're putting it back on the market. So she says, I'm buying high-end items at one-third of the cost and I refuse to shop otherwise. I think that's what you will start seeing happen. Now, factor in the war between Russia and Ukraine. What effect is this having on the stock market, on inflation, oil? If this all seems like a script for the perfect storm, I would be agreeing. What about you? Yes. It, I can't imagine more unfortunate circumstances coming together at one time. We're just coming out of the pandemic marginally. You've got the issue of supply chain because of China's zero COVID policy and the ability to shut down. They shut down Shanghai, 25 million people, including all the ports. That means all those ships waiting to unload or load are frozen. They're just stuck. There's nobody able to go work. That issue, you put in the issue of the Ukrainian war. The U.S. has spent over already over $5 billion on weapons for Ukraine. And I think it's money well spent, personally. Uh, but Again, it's one of those issues. I can't imagine that many events all happening at one time. Um, we ourselves are barely out of the pandemic area. We don't know what BA2 is going to do. We haven't hit the winter yet. Uh, so I think it is a very strange time. The other issue that is you're going to have to deal with across time is how is Europe going to handle this? Uh, they are highly dependent on Russia for fuel, both for oil and for gas. You have the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. It's done, but it has now been decommissioned. But it was built to supply Germany and from Germany out to other European countries, gas from Russia. And now that seems to be off the table. I don't know where else you're going to get that. Um Again, you, you've got people scrambling all over the world, but whatever Germany gets from somebody else in the form of either liquefied natural gas or oil by virtue of tankers, somebody else lost. They got outbid. Um, and that's an amazing economy to suddenly become that vulnerable. Uh, they are the economic engine of Europe. And now all of a sudden... They don't really know how they're going to fuel the engine. While the road ahead always appears to be littered with speed bumps and doesn't have a guardrail, the fact <laughs> of the matter is that we have always recovered. Our winning streak stands at 246 years. What's it going to take to get us to the point that we say, yeah, it was bad, but we made it? When we quit being so polarized and we decide to pull together, just get get off that horse. Um, you don't have to identify yourself as far right, far left. Let's just get back together in the middle. Let's compromise and put our shoulder to the wheel together and we can move this thing. We can make it work. It's how we've survived the 246 years. We didn't do it by one side or the other suddenly being in charge. We did it because we all agreed, okay, Let's do this together. I may not like you a lot, but I can still respect you and work with you. When we come back, Jim will take us on a stroll down memory lane at the Engler College of Business. The MBA is the most popular graduate degree in the United States and with good reason. It leads to better jobs, promotions, and salary increases. At the Paul and Virginia Engler College of Business at West Texas A&M University, 
our MBA program is entirely online for when you're ready to make that move. With as few as 31 credit hours and specializations offered in five areas, you can fast track your career in as little as 18 months. Whether you're looking for promotion or initial job placement, you'll stand head and shoulders above the competition. And because we've been teaching online since 1997, we're not the new kids on the block. Trust your education and career to dedicated faculty who are not only experts in their fields, but also old pros in the online arena. Our consistently high rankings say it all. A GMAT waiver is available. We're AACSB accredited and among the most elite of business schools around the world. Reach for the stars and do it with a WT MBA in hand. For more information, find us at wtamu.edu slash cob or call 806-651-2500. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we're here to help you reach those stars. Jim Owen started teaching at the Angler College of Business in 1976, and he is the most senior among us in terms of both rank and age. But this is Jim's last year at WT. Retirement calls, and at the age of almost 80, Jim has decided it's time to hang up his professor cleats and enjoy a more relaxed pace of life. Okay, he's staying on part-time for a few years, but things will never be the same without Jim Owens holding down the chair of experience and wisdom. And we're going to miss you immensely, Jim. How do you plan to use all that spare time you're going to have? Uh, I'm very fortunate. I have a huge number of hobbies that I tremendously enjoy uh, in, in my workshop. <clears throat> and I'm also very fortunate. I have a dog that um, is ready for some new adventures. So we're off to see the mountains and the swamps and anything that she's never seen before. So we're going to have a good time. Now, I would be remiss if I just asked if you're going to miss anything. I know you're going to miss things because I know when my time comes to bid farewell, I will miss a lot too. But what will you miss the most? Two things, actually. One's my classroom. I have enjoyed, you have to remember, I came from the era of chalkboards. So I miss being in class, prancing and dancing across that chalkboard, trying to show people how to do things. The second thing I will miss are my colleagues. This is an amazing job. Uh, not only do they bring you an audience every semester, which is, I think, very nice of them, because I get to sell the same jokes over and over again, but most critically, I get to come play with my friends. And I don't know many people who get to enjoy that. So I, that's the mm -hmm. two things I'll miss. I'll miss being in my physical classroom, and I will miss getting to play with all my colleagues. I'm pretty sure you'd have to agree that, in retrospect, this really was just a blur. I know it is for me. Sure, in, in recent years, you have taught the children and grandchildren of your <laughs> earliest students, but there's no escaping the fact that as we age, semesters blend and the seasons of academia just become one continuous event that passes and then vanishes. It's hard to believe that 46 years ago, you were green and wet behind the ears. But somewhere along the way, you became that stately oak tree upon whom we could rely to provide shade and repose. Were you aware of this transition? And how did you see your role in the most recent years on our faculty? Primarily providing a sense of history, where we came from. Um, <clears throat> I was fortunate enough to be here in the years before AACSB, went through the AACSB accreditation process, have enjoyed its benefits. Um, and it's a sense of how did we progress to be at this point? And uh, it's, it's hard when you capture people in the hallway not to spend too much time regaling them with, you can't imagine what it was like back when. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of fun to think back that time, conditions were not quite as comfortable as they now are. Uh, and we're kind of spoiled. Yeah, and the snow was a lot deeper back then, too. Yeah, in both ways. In a nutshell, tell us your story, Jim. How did you get here, and why did you stay? 
I have a bachelor's and master's from West Texas A&M. Uh, actually, it's West Texas State College and West Texas State University. It was before we became part of the system. <clears throat> when I graduated from Harvard, um, spent a couple years in the U.S. at different schools, um, and then the Harvard Business School called, and I had spent a summer working in Greece uh, during my undergraduate years when I was at the University of Indiana. And <laughs> Harvard looked on the map, and it must have been a very small map, and they measured the distance between Greece and Iran and said, I think he'd enjoy going there. So they asked if I would go to start a new school for the Harvard Business School in Iran, in Tehran. I did, and my two children are both Iranian. They're both adopted. Um, I was offered a position back in Massachusetts at the University of Massachusetts. But in Massachusetts, you have to hand your children back to human health services and then see if you're qualified to have them. That was not going to fly. Um, I decided I'm going to go home. <laughs> I know people here. Uh, the dean was kind enough to create a job for me. Um, and I believe in paying back. And uh, I, it has been marvelous. The kids, it, it, you have to understand, what people have to understand is in a small town like Canyon, the fact they were Iranian was only interesting until the next major storm blew through. And then we had something new to talk about. And after that, they were just Jim's kids. Um, that's a nice thing. They, they never felt they were different. Um, so that was part of it. Part of it was um, the opportunity to build things. A lot of the people I went to school with at Harvard went to schools that were already had prestige. They were already accredited. I got to build one. That's pretty neat. Um, to be part of making something better than it was when you arrived. So I just, as you say, one year after the other, and all of a sudden you look up and say, my gosh, that's been a lot of years. <laughs> um, I actually did at one halfway through at one point, I actually did go out and shop around. I thought, you know, I think I'm better off where I'm at and never looked back from that. What are some of your fondest memories of your career at WT? And what were some of the pitfalls? After all, you've interred quite a few <laughs> presidents and deans during this time. I mean, heck, you've been here for, under three different names of the university, and not to mention thousands of students and even changing teaching modalities that started back in the late 90s. What are your, your best and worst memories? Um, <laughs> interestingly enough, I actually looked it up. I have taught under eight university presidents, and I studied here under the third university president at West Texas A&M, uh, which is Dr. James Cornett, uh, who I had met and knew. Back then, the president of the university was much more accessible because there weren't that many of us. Um, but it, <laughs> one of the fascinating things, uh, with all due respect to eight presidents and innumerable deans and provosts and department heads and heaven knows what else, I've often made the observation that regardless of all that, my classroom has not changed a bit in 46 years. It's me and 35 students trying to wrap our head around a topic. We just get in there and we say, here's an issue. How do we analyze? How do we handle this? How do we make a decision? With all that change in administrative structure and all those adjustments, you walk in the classroom and it's just like it was. It's me and 35 students trying to Get a hold of these ideas. I can't do this episode without giving credit where it is due. Um, Jim, you were my mentor early on, and you championed my survival at the college, and for that, I am truly grateful. <laughs> it was a very different college back then. <laughs> we weren't accredited by anybody, I don't think, right? <laughs> Not even... No. Yeah. 
and certainly not double ACSB, but that does not diminish in the least what you did to nurture this once young prof. And then in 1993, you did something with my first wife and me as we raced a tandem bicycle across the U.S. <laughs> in the race across America. What are your memories of this event? I mean, you saw the dark side of me and, and some other sides I won't mention. <laughs> Uh, actually, it's one of my fondest memories. Uh, it truly is. And uh, one of my biggest accomplishments was finally getting to Savannah with you guys. Um, what do I remember about it? Uh, three things. One is I'm stuck in two vans, mine and yours. Uh, we rigged them identical. As you may recall, we had a fan problem with yours at one point, and it only took 15 minutes to switch the vans and we just went right on. So we had, we'd intentionally done that. But the amazing thing is both those vans, except for me, were full of vegetarians. Um, that was a new experience. Uh, I have a couple of fun memories about that. Um, one was um, I stopped to feed the crew at one point with burritos. And uh, a certain rider on a tandem bicycle named Garlic grabbed one off the hood and about, I'd say, 10 miles, 15 miles down the road, he was severely regretting after five or six days of living on liquid diet that that burrito didn't go down nearly as well as he had hoped it would. Um, the other one was we came across the Mississippi River, and I'm sure Nick will remember it. I was in the, the uh, follow van at the time, and the seat came off of the stoker position, the back position on the tandem. Becky was in the back landed on the ground, and I slammed on the brakes and stopped inches from her head. Um, what I remember, that was not the humorous part. The humorous part was we decided to take a break at a McDonald's and give the crew a chance to kind of, okay, let's everybody chill. Roger Mankin and I went to work trying to put the seat back on and get it secured. The funniest part was when Nick walked out of the bathroom, he says, I should not have looked in the mirror because... <laughs> God, do I look bad. And I said, yeah, I've been noticing that. But, you know, we need to get back on the bike and keep going again. And uh, and we did. So I have a lot of fun memories of that. Yeah, that bridge was the one that was closed for several months Yes, in 2021. Um it's hard to imagine they even let us ride bicycles across us and across that. And I guess the saving grace was that was about three thirty in the morning. It so was. There was no traffic. It wasn't a bit of but, traffic. And it, black as it could be out there, you couldn't even see the river down below. Because if you had locked up your brakes like that in the afternoon, oh, you would yeah. have caused a massive pileup. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow that event shaped the rest of my life in completing it, and, and in no small thanks to your leadership of the crew. Uh, to, to keep us pedaling all the way to Savannah, I learned that I can do whatever I set my mind to. What did you take away from it? Just keep going. No matter what, just get up and keep going. I'd wake you guys up after three hours of sleep, try to talk you into the fact it had been seven. I wasn't, I wasn't talking into it real well, but I was trying. Get back on the bike and let's go. And... I do that in my life. Just keep going. One step after another, you, you know where you want to be. Just keep going. It's not that complicated. As you reflect on a career well spent, what words of advice do you have for junior faculty? It's a very different world from when you entered as a faculty member. And yet at the end of the day, we still do pretty much the same things, just differently. Focus on the students. Students come first. Build your program. Make it sure that you are building something that will keep them employed and contributing adults as life goes on. You want to focus. Yes, you have to do enough research to stay legit. I have a very biased view about business school research. If you're an ag and you do research, it's a new crop or an improved animal. You get a better cut of beef. If you are in fine arts, your research is a performance. Somebody gets to hear you, or you write a book, or you write a poem. But you actually have a product. There's something physical there. If you're an engineering professor, 
you enhance design and materials. You build something. That bridge is stronger because you came up with a new way to do triangulation. If you're in education, everything you do goes to secondary school improvement. How do I teach better? In business, research goes to other business profs. Businesses never see it. That I find almost bizarre. We don't have to meet the discipline of the marketplace, which I find very odd. So I'll basically, I advise young faculty, do enough research to stay legal, to stay legitimate, and then focus on students. That's your job. That's what I hired you for, was to help those students learn. Our guest today has been Jim Owens, the Hodges Professor of Corporate Governance at the Engler College of Business. Give us your best shot, Jim, one last time. Anytime you feel like you're really important, come by the house and try to make my dog behave. You've been listening to Buff Speak from the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. Our executive producer is Justin Lovell, and Allison Hunter is our associate producer. Our co-editors are Maverick Evans and Paul Torres. Lindsay Bjork is our director of marketing and outreach initiatives, which includes overseeing Buff Speak. Dr. Jeffrey Babb is director of accreditation and is our technical consultant. Finally, Dr. Amjad Abdullah is dean of the college. You can find us online at wtamu.edu slash cob for more information about our programs. Be sure to check out our many academic offerings. Come for the quality, stay for the small classes, affordable tuition, and friendly approachable professors. And look online at our faculty blog, profspeak.com, for more insights. You can listen to BuffSpeak on your favorite podcast portal, as well as on our website, buffspeak.biz. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't be afraid to share us with your friends, colleagues, and family. Word of mouth has always been the best form of advertising. Until next time, love one another. For the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University, I am Dr. Nick Gerlich. And as always, go Buffs! Buff speak.